For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Living Stones, based on 1 Peter 2, 5. Mr. Whiteley. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here, as it always is, on another Sabbath day, which feels a little bit better today uh, than it has been. It's pretty, been pretty warm, so it's a... That's a nice break, and and uh, I don't know about you, but that, that heat has been just, just a killer uh, the last few weeks. And uh, I was talking with Sean uh, just a little while ago, and we were talking about, he had mentioned that that weather is starting to kind of make you think about some things, you know, that little change, that little coolness, and that is, of course, the Holy Days coming up here. Uh, we're about a month out to when they start the Fall Holy Days, uh, and so... Definitely looking forward to that. So as Reggie just pointed out, my message today is entitled, Living Stones. And I got this title from 2 Peter verses 4 through 10, but I didn't start out actually looking at this, these passages. In fact, I started out, and we're going to look at Romans, the 12th chapter. I started out looking at Romans 12 this week, and... Connected to Romans 12, or not connected, but a related verse, and we're going to see how they're related, was in 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 4 through 10, or uh, one of the verses within 4 through 10. And so, one of the things that Peter tells us that we are, is we are living stones. And that we are connected to the living stone. So I just want to start out, let's just go there and let's just read it. And we're going to talk a little bit about this today because I'll be honest, when I was coming up with this message today, I was a little bit, I felt like it was a little basic. Does that make sense? I felt like this, you know, the, everything, you know, I was writing it out and I was reading it and I was kind of looking at these passages and I kind of got at the end and I said, you know, I'm, I really don't feel like I'm, there's a lot of anything new here. And I get to church. And I hear about how we're having a baptism next week. Miss Callie Cole. And I start reading over my notes right before I came up here. And I was like, man, this is like really kind of a pre-baptismal type sermon. And so I kind of got a little energy and was like, wow, man, I really feel like maybe God has kind of directed me to do this, even though I was almost kind of, I don't want to say the word disappointed. That's probably not the appropriate way to choose it, but just kind of not satisfied. Is that the way to put it? Not satisfied with the content. And so I wanted to start off by reading 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 4 through 10, because we can read all different passages throughout the Bible and see the wonderful things that God has in store for us, the promises, the blessings. But 1 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 4 through 10, to be honest with you, something I've read many times, and many of us have probably read it, but for some reason, that term, living stones, popped out at me this week. Even though I was starting out in Romans, the 12th chapter, and that was the basis of what I was wanting to bring to you today, Romans, or uh, the term living stones jumped out at me. And if you just pick it up, we're going into context here now, we're, we're not starting a new chapter, but we're... We're starting in verse 4. Peter says, Coming to him as to a living stone, 
rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, interesting how he calls Jesus, we know Jesus is the living stone, and there's many prophecies about the cornerstone that was rejected by men, even right here in this passage, or these passages that we're reading. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And we know this story of Jesus Christ that came as flesh, as human flesh. As we see in Ephesians, talks about the one who is at the most high, that was in the highest of heavens, descended to the lowest of all there was. And that was, of course, to the depths of this earth in the form of human flesh. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because being disobedient to the word to which they were also to which they also were appointed. But you, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And we know that Peter, just like Jesus did when Jesus was on this earth, he pointed to talk about the stumbling block, the rock of offense. Paul talks about the same thing. And they all go to some of those famous passages in the Bible. Isaiah, the 28th chapter, the 8th chapter, Psalm 118. We're not going to go there, but all of them talk about this rock of stumbling. And that becomes the chief cornerstone that even though men and women reject it, becomes the cornerstone, the foundation in which God is building everything. Now it's interesting, who wrote this? And that is Peter. In light of the experiences of Peter that we see in the gospel message. You see, there's a lot of things that's, you know, if, well, we'll put it this way. If there's anyone to interpret for us this idea of the rock, when it comes to the way it's talked about in the New Testament, Peter's probably the best candidate and that has to do with because his actual name means stone. And it was given to him by Jesus. The first time that Peter met Jesus with his brother Andrew, Cephas, that's what he was called. Jesus says, I will call you, or no, I, I will call you Peter, basically, which is Cephas, translated Peter, translated stone. And we know that this would eventually later on in another chapter, Matthew the 16th chapter, which we're going to look at, would also materialize into a story that would become something that is historically misunderstood by much of church history. So let's just read this. This is an interesting, and I'll get into what I'm talking about in a minute, about why there's a relevancy for Peter to talk about who the rock was, who the stone was. 
in light of what we see in the Gospels directed at Peter and then in light of what we see as a paramount doctrine, paramount doctrine to one of the largest church organizations in the world. Matthew the 16th chapter, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. That word living is such an important aspect of what we see here in the Scriptures. Especially in light of all the different gods that really don't compete with the living God, but the other gods that people bow down to. And that is because they're not living. So Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, said, and Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the key, keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now we know that historically, or maybe you don't know, I'm just, we're not going to cover this a lot, but for a long time the Roman Catholic Church taught, and the Catholic view of this, this and there's no, you know, there's no attempt to try to belittle the Roman Catholic Church or any other church organization, but we know that this was historically been a misunderstood text because the Roman Catholic view is that Peter, this is the justification of why Peter was the first pope. That right here that is proof that Jesus gave him the triple crown, the crown of heaven, the crown of earth, and the crown of hell. And that through Peter, Peter still reigns as, as through his successors, and that the popes that came after him have the primacy over all, all things when it comes to the church institution on this earth. And we know that this is, this is an incorrect view. And it's important for us to understand this because the correct view, as Peter interprets us, is that the living stone, the real rock, as we see throughout all the scriptures, is God Almighty Himself. We can go through Genesis all the way to Revelation and we see that the rock is Jesus Christ and our Father in Heaven. That's the rock. Now when we read this, 1 Peter, the second chapter, this string of passages, there are many things that we can look at. But what's interesting is if we just kind of take a piece of paper as I did, and I wrote down every little thing that Peter tells us that we are. He says that we're living stones, as we just read. That we're a spiritual house. That we're a holy priesthood. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. So a holy and a royal priesthood. A holy nation. And his own special people. What a beautiful thing that is. That coming in to God's fold means that he has blessed us with all of these things. That's, that's a pretty powerful thing right there. 
that's a pretty powerful thing to think of, that the living God, the God of all of this universe, even though we're not deserving of it, even though it's something that we're not worthy of, because of His love for us, He has called us out to be these things. And there's two things in this string of passages. A title, he, he gives us all of these different titles, these descriptions of who we are, but there's two things that he talks about what our mission, what we are, as these things are to do. Number one, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And number two, we are to proclaim His praises. And that's why, and that's right here, how it got me to from Romans the 12th chapter to 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. So let's go to Romans the 12th chapter and we're going to look at that. Romans the 12th chapter and I brought the wrong Bible today. I usually preach from the New King James Version which I'm still preaching from, but this is my ESV, Bible English Standard Version. But Romans, the 12th chapter, we're going to read something that we've read many times before. But it's an important part of the Scriptures because it just talks a little bit about what God has done for us and what it means to lay down our former selves and pick up our cross after Christ, after our Savior, and follow after Him. We've all read these passages before, but Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we've heard this passage preached many times. I think I've touched upon this before in the past. But what is interesting is that right here in chapter 12, Paul has just finished up going over the many things regarding our former state of being. Our salvation. Romans is one of the most bulkiest books in the entire New Testament regarding our theology of salvation. And how that has worked out. And there's this discussion in the book of Romans. and I mean, it's a tough book. It, uh, everyone that has read the, the epistle of Romans can tell you that it's probably one of the more difficult epistles to study simply because it's a pretty dense book. And so as we read this scriptures right here, he talks about, therefore I beseech you. And we know that there's a connection to the previous verses. We know that there's a connection to what Paul had to say. And so if we just review, of course we're not going to go anywhere. So some of the things that Paul talks about here in the epistle to the Romans, he talks about our justification. He talks about how we were dead in our trespasses. How we were dead in sin. He gives us, in chapter 12, practical steps by which we are to respond, though, to the gift that we have been given. Salvation. Freedom. Broken chains, chains that have shackled us, ensnared us to sin. He gives us practical steps that we are to live by. And so we're going to look at some of those. Now, we need to notice just one thing. 
But I want to point out. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Mercies of God. And I think that we would all understand that we are been given the mercies of God. And so, when I was thinking about one of the things that is how God is merciful to us, uh, one of the ways that we can define mercy, I think, is withholding punishment when it's deserved. It is not the, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little flushed here. I just drank some coffee, so let me get a drink real quick. Probably wasn't the smartest choice. But one of the ways that we can define mercy is withholding punishment when it is deserved. And we know that it's not that God has done for us, and still, it's not that God, excuse me, sorry, apologize. Might have to take a quick break real quick, getting a little lightheaded. I'll be alright. Alright, talk about the mercies of God. Apologize. Okay? Withholding punishment when it's deserved. When we think about the mercies of God. God's withheld our punishment from us. Our salvation, we know that it is a gift. And it's something that God has given us based upon His mercy. I think that this is best understood in light of our previous state as mortal man. It is something that the Bible testifies to and the world is oblivious to. The world is oblivious to what God has offered to them and we know that the world is oblivious to it. In fact, we see that they rejected that cornerstone and we know that in rejection of that cornerstone, it's not because, well some of it, obviously it's because of the depravity of man. It's because that they're blinded by it as the scriptures tells us. But a lot of that rejection is because they truly do not believe in the things that the scriptures and the things that the truths that the scriptures reveal to us. They do not believe. They laugh at it. They scoff at it. We see all throughout the, Old, or the, uh, the, the book of Acts, not just by the Jews, but also by the Gentiles. It was foolishness to think of, for the, for the Jews, it was foolish to think about a Savior that died. Because that's the opposite of what they thought about. A Savior that was crucified, that was a criminal, that's not what they expected of, of a Savior. To the Gentiles, it was foolishness because in their mythology, any idea of dying and being resurrected again back into the mortal fleshly body, that means that, of course, that's, that's something that is foolishness. Because the whole point in Greek mythology was to be able to go back into the afterlife and be with the different immortal individuals. So it was foolishness to, the, to, to those individuals. But we know that still the world is oblivious to what God has offered to them and they do not understand the seriousness of the transgression against God. Now, as a side note, and this isn't to say anything against Judaism, or against Islam. I firmly do not believe in those ideologies. Those religious systems. But one of the things. 
that is neglected between those two religions, especially to an, to an extent, and, and I by no means want to misrepresent what Judaism believes or what Jews believe, is the seriousness of sin and transgression and how that's forgiven. So, in one way, we know that in Judaism, they do take sin very serious and they take observing the law very serious. But the forgiveness part, the redemption part, the, the atonement part, they take that serious as well. But unfortunately, they look at it as if it can just be something that God just forgives. That God can still maintain to be all righteous and all just by just declaring you righteous without there being a sacrifice which we know the pattern all throughout the Old Testament was that death had to take place for sin to be covered. And it was always pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And the world is oblivious to what God has offered to them and they do not understand the seriousness of our transgression against God. And inevitably, because of this, when you don't understand how serious... Your transgression against God is. And what it takes for that transgression, for that transgression to be covered, you cannot understand the mercies of God. I know we say it all the time. We say God's had mercy on us. God has grace on us. And it seems really, really, really almost cliche. Not stereotypical, but cliche. And because people say it over and over and over again, you hear that and it's such normal language, of course it does seem cliche. But it's not cliche when you understand the truth of it, just how serious being bare before a mighty God in your sins. And inevitably, people cannot understand that mercy because they don't understand that. They cannot understand the justification and how important justification is. Justification being made right and right standing with God. And this is what Paul is getting at here in the epistle to the Romans. Has Paul just went over the spiritual and physical manifestation of God's mercy by which he has brought us to justification and salvation through Christ in the previous 11 chapters leading up to these two verses in Romans 12. I beseech you by the mercies of God Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be, trans, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so if we think about that idea, if we think about that idea, and we're not going to go there, as I mentioned, but in Romans it talks about Israel. And another misunderstanding by much of Christianity is this idea that Israel is just basically being replaced. Now you have the church. We're moving forward. And... Israel's lost its, its bet or its ability or its, its, its rightful place in God's plan. Now I think that Paul would disagree with that if you go to several spots throughout the epistle of Romans as well as other places. But what we do know is a lot of the language in the book or the epistle of Romans does talk about Israel and it starts talking about some of those promises because in the Old Testament we know that it's all about Israel, right? Right? It's about being heirs of Abraham because you are of the seed of Abraham. And God gave these promises to Abraham and to his seed. But then you move into the New Testament and you read about this guy named Jesus and about how 
all those people who are coming into Jesus are being grafted in. Grafted in to those promises. Heirs of Abraham according to Jesus. Heirs of Abraham according to Jesus. And so Paul is instructing us that in light of all of these things, in light of the mercy that God has given us, in light of the justification, forgiveness of sins, to bringing us, and we can even, I think, go to some of the same language that, that, that Peter uses, living stone, spiritual house, holy priesthood, we see in other parts. I think we can even bring that in. In light of all those things, in light of that, we are to present ourselves living sacrifices. But we have to ask the question, how are we to be living sacrifices? Well, I think that when you think about sacrifice, which most of us would agree, we think about the Old Testament terminology. We think about the individuals who perform the sacrifices. And that, were, that was the, the Old Testament priesthood. And the high priest who did the most important ones. In the Old Testament, we know that the priests offered their sacrifice, but not just hastily. They didn't just wake up and say, well, it's 9 o'clock, it's 12 o'clock, it's 3 o'clock, it's time to sacrifice. There was a significantly detailed process that they had to go through in order to be worthy and to follow the outlines that God had prescribed to present the sacrifice, to present themselves Worthy of being able to sacrifice on behalf of the community. And Paul, as Peter, is attributing this to us. We too, today, we are priests. A priest is someone who goes in between. Now we understand we have a primary high priest. We have Christ. Okay? We are... We are after the order of Melchizedek, or not the order of Melchizedek, but after the order of Christ, who's after the order of Melchizedek, because he is of, of Judah, he's not of Levi. And we are called priests, and priests are people who are mediators. Now, we don't mediate in between God and humans because of their sin. People don't come and confess their sins to us. We don't cleanse anyone's sins. But we mediate God's plan to this world. God is using us as a priesthood, as his servants, as living stones, to go out and to demonstrate to the world his glory, his son, and proclaim his mercies, to proclaim his praises. We don't give physical sacrifices for our salvation that's been done for us. But just like a priest, we must prepare ourselves. We must be in preparation and to make ourselves holy, to consecrate ourselves. It's interesting because when you think about the idea of a living stone, there's the opposite involved. You see, Jesus is the living stone. But one of, the, one of the things he's most known for is death. And we join in on that. We join in on that. Let's go to Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20. Sacrifice always indicates death. 
But in Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And we understand that our former selves have been killed. You see, baptism, it's a burial. And we understand it like that. And that's, that's the pattern that God has given us. You see, when Jesus was crucified, even his disciples thought it was over. They thought, man, we, we, we really believed in this guy. We, we saw what he did. We saw the miracles. We saw him raise someone from the dead. We saw him walk on water. And now he's dead. But we understand what happens a few days later. He rises. And the pattern in which we are given in the New Testament is the same pattern as Jesus. We too, not in a physical sense, well, eventually in a physical sense, when God allows that to happen. But in a spiritual sense, we too are to die. We're to die in Christ. And that's what we all did in baptism. That baptism represents a grave. That grave that is there is not for you though. It's for your old man, your old woman. And when you come up from that baptism, that spiritual burial, you come up, someone who has left slavehood to this world, service to this world, a servant to the flesh, you are raised up as a living stone, a living servant to the living God, to the living Savior of this world. Now looking at the context of this letter here, Paul gives us this exhortation here in Romans, the 12th chapter. I think that there's a connection, possibly in Romans 6 to Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans 6, let's go there real quick. Romans 6. It says in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I just mentioned, we are no longer to live a life that is in service to our unrighteous flesh but a life that is in service to righteousness and service to God and service to our living God, the living stone, as living stones ourself. Now, if we transition and we look at verse 2, and we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, number one, at a very basic level, at a level that's theological, it's what we just read. We give up our formal life, for, former life, to live a life to Christ. And in so doing, we become conformer or transformers, not conformers. Verse 2 says of Romans, the 12th chapter, 
It says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Conform, don't be conformed to the, the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I don't know about you, but it's really easy to be conformed to this world. Think about the daily intake that we have, even when we try not to have it. And what I mean by that are consumption. We have jobs. We have sometimes things that we do in entertainment. And we consume a lot of what this world has to offer. And sometimes it's unavoidable. And it's not easy not to, and to some extent, even for us as Christians, even after we're baptized, to be tempted to conform to the things that this world has to offer. Being a conformer is very easy. Sometimes I think even subliminally, I'm not even saying that right, but without even knowing, unconsciously, we can conform to this world. I know I can. I can think of many examples of myself doing it. Probably, if I really, really thought about it, I could probably think of examples that I do it daily. You see, the problem is, sometimes I think, even within Christianity, that we can get into this sense of being blinded by small things. Right? Small things that, well, a little cuss word here and there is not bad. And obviously, that's just an example I'm thinking of. Or, you know, well, maybe I consume, you know, watch this movie or something I probably really shouldn't watch. It's okay, though. I don't believe in it. Okay, I don't believe in it. I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to watch it. I mean, I don't agree with how they talk or I don't, you know, that's not how I talk. Of course, I'm a Christian. Hey, I follow Christ. But then we, we, we continue to consume it and we listen to it. And then eventually, when we hear it, it's like not even that big of a deal. Like we're not outraged by it. I think that maybe if you're anything like me, maybe you have experiences like that and you've had that. But that's one thing that I think of sometimes when I'm thinking about how easy it is to be conformed to this world. Where we're almost desensitized to things that we should be appalled at. I think there's other areas of life, too, that we could all agree on where we sometimes think that a conformance to something, even if we unconsciously or consciously are aware of it, that we can almost convince ourselves that, like, yeah, that's, that's, I'm doing God's service. You know, we can think about this in politics even, right? Okay? Maybe you have a political ideology, a political view that you really think is in line with what the Bible has to say. And I see this, unfortunately, among the Christian right. I'm not trying to be critical of it. I think that all of us could agree with it. But sometimes we get to the point because in righteousness, we have a stance. And that stance, maybe it does align with the Bible. But we proclaim it in an ungodly and an unrighteous way. So we take something that really is a righteous belief, a righteous stance... But the vehicle, the manner in which we want to present it, is in, in unrighteousness. 
It's in a spirit of hatefulness, not in a spirit of love. It's in a spirit of, I'd rather win than be effective. Ever think about that? When it comes to convincing people? You know, I, I think about this as an educator sometimes, and there's someone told me this a long time ago. And that is when you have a conflict with maybe a student, maybe it's children, because it's the same thing. What's your, where's your focus? Is your focus solution-oriented or is your focus winning-oriented? This person said this to me. My kid said this to me. And you're more interested in winning and showing that person, showing that kid, showing that individual that, no, you're not going to let them get away with it and you're going to get the last laugh. Then you are a solution, a long-term solution to get them to not behave like that. To get them to not think like that. To convince them to change their mind. So are we solution oriented or are we winning oriented? I think that the Christian view is more solution oriented. I don't want to try to argue with someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So I can leave there and say, man, I beat that guy. I showed him all the evidence. He walked out of here. He had... Nothing to stand on. No leg to stand on whatsoever about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Our focus should be we're trying to convince them so they believe in this risen Savior and so they can join in into that justification process so they can be a part of the kingdom of God. You know, there was one guy that was really, really important that had to be convinced that Christ really was the risen Savior. And we know we're reading his epistle right now. And of course we know that importance comes from God. We know that God sanctioned him. We know that God's the one. It's not Paul. It's not because he's some great human. We, we all you know, look at him and think, man, he's so wonderful. We know it's the power of God working through him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Focusing on being servants the living God. Being a living stone, kind of going back and forth, being a living stone means that we're being a servant. Christianity is about service. Following after Christ is about service. He's the greatest servant of all. The Savior of all mankind to demonstrate his service to us. Not only lay down his life. We see that. But even would sit down. Right before he's getting ready to die. And wash his disciples feet. Wash his disciples feet. That's wonderful. That's powerful. We do that every year. And I think that's something that we have to remind ourselves. That it was more than just a cultural thing. But there was a point that Jesus was getting at. We're following after the pattern of Christ. And a servant, sometimes in this life, doesn't get all the blessings that does, does he or she. We don't. In fact, the hope that we have, oftentimes, most of it, as the Bible tells us, is afar off. God wants us to have a good life. And being a Christian, he doesn't always promise you that everything's great and glorious and, and you're going to get a million dollars or you're going to be wealthy and you're never going to have any kind of ailment or anything like that. Despite, unfortunately, what some teach. 
Being a Christian is about being a servant and taking up your cross and following after Christ daily and putting your hand to the plow, as Jesus says, and never looking back. Okay. Excuse me, I was just trying to see where I was at here. Alright, so let's go to the 1 Samuel, the 4th chapter. I didn't give this to Brian. I had another example that I decided that I wanted to change. Let's go to 1 Samuel, the 4th chapter. First Samuel, the 4th chapter. So in light or in relation to this idea of being someone who transforms and renews our minds, I was thinking about, and I think I was just kind of harping on some of the ideas that even us as Christians sometimes have a hard time continually to transform our mind and how easy it is to be someone who conforms to this world. You know, oftentimes, I don't know if you talk with people a lot about faith or about religion, Maybe you just read about, you know, different things. I know that sometimes in the past I've talked to people and one of the sticking points of people really fully giving themselves over to Christ and become a Christian is this idea of just simply not wanting to give up their life. We talked about that's the cornerstone. That's what, that's the core of what Christianity is all about. Giving up our former selves, our former conduct to follow after Christ. And so sometimes people go through this life and they just think, you know, I remember being young and thinking, this was before I was baptized and I was like, man, I wasn't really living like I should be. You know, I I, I wasn't really committed and I was just, I I felt like that, man, I'll I'll, I'll make it right with God later. Right? I'll make it right with God later later. Right now, I'm kind of enjoying my life. There's some things that I like to do that I know really isn't something that I should be doing as a Christian. And so, I'm just going to live this part of my life right here, and later on, I'll commit my life to Christ. Now, I had grown up in church my whole life. So it wasn't a matter of believing. That's the strange thing. It wasn't a matter of believing that Jesus was the Christ, or believing that there was a God, or believing that this was the Word of God. It was a commitment problem. And that's where a lot of people get mixed up, I think. The, the commitment part. You see, they rather look at the things of life, the perishable things, and, and, and partake in those things, as opposed to committing themselves to Christ. Because they think that they're missing out if they don't. But when you actually get baptized and you see the list of things that God promises us, you see the list of things that God brings us into? You see how being in Christ is being a spiritual house or a part of a spiritual house? That He's building a spiritual house? That He's a holy priesthood? That we are becoming a part of a holy and royal priesthood? 
that we're a chosen generation, that we're His own special people, there's nothing that can, pe- that can compete with that. Nothing. There's nothing that can compete with that. All of those things, all of the things that this life has to offer are perishable. They're things that will not continue to exist. And so I was, was thinking about this, that idea of people sometimes wanting to you know, withhold their commitment to Christ because they have things that they want to do. Sometimes there's people that find other options, like a middle ground. So in one way you have to say, I'm not going to commit to Christ. I'm not going to commit to God because I, I got things I want to do. I want to have fun. On the other end, you have people that actually commit to Christ, which is great. Commit to, to the Word of God, to, 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 to giving themselves over that watery baptism. Then there's that middle ground. And that middle ground is, I'm going to commit to Christ, but I'm going to conform Him and mesh Him into what I think He should be. So I'm going to make Him, and I'm not saying people like consciously do this. I'm saying that inevitably we have examples of people doing this. I want to make Him be what I want Him to be. That way I can like worship Him in a manner that, you know, is, is after my likeness. Is the way I want to know. We can think of many ways that that was done in the Old Testament. We can think of the golden calf, right? The golden calf, Moses is up on the mountain. People are scared. Moses hasn't came down yet. And we see that Moses, he's up there, he's getting instruction from God, getting the tablets, and the people start putting pressure on Aaron and say, up, make us gods, and what do they do? They fashion a god after what they were always used to, a golden calf, and they call that golden calf the Almighty, the Eternal, the God who brought them, the God of Israel who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now there's a story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter, that's a little bit similar to this, but it's sometimes it's hard to notice because it doesn't directly say this. But if we just read, and I'm going to have to read through the ESV, so I apologize if it's a little different. If we just read in 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter, verse 1, we just pick it up just to kind of let you know, Samuel had just been called the chapter before and let known that he's going to be a prophet for God. You see, Israel was not doing what they were supposed to do. They had Eli... Who was, the high, who was basically the high priest. He wasn't really following the instructions. He wasn't that good of a, of a high priest. His sons really weren't doing their job. They were kind of making a mockery of the priesthood. But in chapter 4, Israel is in some trouble. And they're in trouble with their arch enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines. And verse 1 says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel, and now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Ephek. The Philistines drew up, the, uh, drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, stop right here and let's think about this. I've talked about this in a message before. But I really think sometimes that we have a lot of relationships in our life, and people do, to what Israel did right here. Let me explain. Israel is fighting against their arch enemy. They're like, we're the people of God. God has brought us into this, this land. And the people, the Philistines, like they defeated us. And so in their mind, they go through 
the reasons why that could have been. Why did they defeat us? Well, maybe it's because we didn't put the, the tabernacle in the right place. No. Maybe it's because we didn't, we didn't have the right weapons or the right armory. No. Oh, I know what it is. It's because we need physically the Ark of the Covenant here in the middle of the battlefield. Now, nowhere in their thinking, as indicated here in the story, did they ever think to themselves, maybe it's because we don't really live after the way God wants us to live after. They never talked about repentance. They never talked about correcting their behavior. They never talked about, you know, maybe our high priest and our priesthood's not really doing the things that they should. Maybe we've gotten really lax in the way that we think about God. In fact, right here, is an example of Israel, in some extent, committing idolatry. Strange, I know. With the Ark of the Covenant, how does that work? Committing idolatry simply because they're trying to be like the other nations who would oftentimes bring their gods with them or bring good luck charms with them, thinking that was the source of their success. Nowhere in this entire passage or this entire story, do we hear about Israel reflecting on themselves and saying, we've sinned before God. We need to change our ways. We need to change our attitudes. Instead, they prefer to look for the wrong solution. And they prefer to conform to what other nations do when they go out to battle. That's what we see Israel do. And that's what we as Christians transforming ourselves not after the world but after God not after the world but after God so there's four things which can be practical application points that I want us to look at in conclusion and that is these are things I believe they're by no means a comprehensive list of things that Sometimes I think keep people from committing to Christ. And even after you do commit to Christ, things that we need to remember, because we know that that old man still tries to rear his or her old, old head and get us to conform to the world. The first one is a me attitude. An attitude focused on the self rather than on God and an attitude that looks to worship God in our own ways the way we think God should be worshipped and not with an attitude that seeks out what God desires. That seems to be something that is very common in the world today. There's no judgments. I think that maybe even we sometimes, we can, in our minds, get like this and we have to be on guard against it. This is usually caused by the second reason. Convenience. People out of laziness and vainness want to search out the easy way of convenience when it comes to worshiping God. This is a part of the first reason, which is a me attitude. We know convenience sometimes can be an idol in some ways. You know, it's more convenient just to, you know, well, let's just, let's just, and I'm not saying it's sin not to, do things, not, not to study your Bible every day or not to pray or things like that, but you know, to truly understand the Word of God. And if you're truly after God, you want to know Him. 
And there's times that all of us go through where we're maybe not studying like we should be. We're not meditating on his precepts like we should be. But there's sometimes, you know, there's, this, there's a temptation to maybe get into that, well, let's just, let's just, you know, listen to a sermon and then you don't listen to a sermon and then you just, you get to the point, well, instead of my Bible reading, I'll just read like a little psalm or something like that. And, 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 or, or instead of going to church this week, let's just, you know, watch it online, which is fine, totally. There's nothing wrong with it. It all depends on your motivation. And, the, you know, obviously, uh, we have to miss church from time to time. That, that's not saying that that's wrong or bad. It's, it, it's saying, though, that there, if there's an attitude behind it that we're, well, just really not into it. Uh, maybe we have to think what's going on in our personal life, in our spiritual life. How could... How much do we strive for convenience when it comes to spirituality? Do we want a convenient spiritual life? And that's a strange thing to think about. Do we want just to worship God when it's convenient for us? That's kind of a way that we can think about it. And obviously worshiping God means more than just going to church and singing songs and listening to sermons and reading the Bible. Worshiping God is a living sacrifice that we can do on a daily basis, 24-7, by committing to Christ and putting Him first and continually trying to seek His will. Third, lack of fellowship with God and the brethren. When we start neglecting time with God through Bible study and prayer, stop feeding ourselves spiritually, we start getting weak spiritually and inevitably we'll start conforming to the world. And lastly, living in sin and compromise, which I've already kind of touched upon this earlier. And we know that sin is like cancer. We've heard that many times, like that example. You know, it's, cancer is something that spreads. Cancer is something that if you don't remove it, it's not going to stop growing. It's going to start growing here, the origin, and it's going to go over here and over here and over here, and soon it's everywhere. And we understand that sin is everywhere on this physical life. And we can't compromise with it because we lose our sensitivity when we do and we start trying to justify and compromise. Brethren, as we wrap up this message, I just want us to think about how wonderful it is, what a beautiful thing it is that we are living stones. You know, it's interesting because living implies something that's alive. And God's called the living God the living stone, the living Savior. Life is what's important. Life is what's important. And why it's so important, why that's highlighted all throughout the Scriptures, I believe, is because oftentimes we replace our God for something that's not alive. The God of this materialistic thing. The, the, you know, in the Old Testament, it was idols, right? It was idols made of stone that weren't living. It hadn't have a heart, didn't have anything to it. It didn't have any spirituality to it. it didn't have a, a, a blood pumping in it. Life. A living Savior. Living stones. That's what we are. We are living stones. Each one of us. A piece of that living stone that is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the rock. And He's taking us after him, 
as he is the living stone, we are living stones that are building up a spiritual house. He is building up a spiritual house for this world, building up his body so we can continue to praise him. And ultimately the goal is is to bring people to faith. We know that that's something that is not going to happen all in this lifetime. We know that there is a kingdom coming. But God's building towards that kingdom. That kingdom is not being built in one day in the sense of you know, when the kingdom comes, there's going to be so many years, obviously, that God has been working with individuals and have been accumulating living stones. Individuals that have put down their old lives and decided to come and be a part of that community of brethren, community of faith, and a piece of the ultimate kingdom that ultimate kingdom, that kingdom that we're all made up of. Remember what it says in Daniel. It says that there's this kingdom that comes that's not made with hands and that it's going to crush all other kingdoms. So let's reflect on those things.